Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malkin. Today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as Sometimes I feel like being a revolutionary cat. Humans of Twitter is their stories, in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Kate Carruthers. Hello. Hello, Kate. Welcome. Can I start by asking, please, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, it very much depends. If it's a Twitter-related uh, social setting, I often introduce myself as Kate Carruthers. And that's all you need. <laughs> And it is often commented that I don't resemble my uh, avatar, so, yeah. That's outrageous. I mean, let's be fair. If, if we can't trust people's Twitter profile pics, what can we trust? <laughs> Are you uh, a cat lady? No, hilariously, I'm allergic to cats. Great. I love them, though. <laughs> so digital cats are fine, real-life cats are problematic. Yeah. Do you... Uh, have you got any pets? Oh, yeah, I have dogs. I have two dogs. And and obviously not allergic to dogs. That's okay. They're okay. Yeah, okay with dogs, but not cats. But I do love cats. It's just that I have to go home and have a shower and take antihistamines and lie down in the dark for a while. After I yeah, touch it's all them. of the drag stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear that and acknowledge that. And in a crisis or an argument, are you fight or flight? Uh, it depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does depend on the situation. So it would be for me, I'd weigh up the strategic um, goals and objectives, the, the chances of winning. Should I run away and fight another day? Should I win the battle, lose the yes. war? Should I, you know, so all of those things in, go into it for me. Oh, understandably. That's very circumspect. A lot of people don't tend to think of the long game and just see the immediate um, conflict in front of them and you know, attack or, or retreat. That's okay if you don't want to win. <laughs> Kate Carruthers, winner. <laughs> what has that meant for you then in situations where you've wanted to win or needed to win, uh, but you've maybe had to strategically step aside or go around aboutts to do so? Well, if it's something that that I want or I care about, then I'm playing the longer game. So I will always do what it, what suits the longer game, not the short term. What are things high on the Kate cares about list? Oh, many things. So you know, I care about um, I care about social justice. I care about um, people. Some people, not all people. Um, I care about my work. I care about technology in general. Uh, I care about social innovation. So lots of things. Can I reveal some ignorance and ask what is social innovation? Social innovation is basically um, where we take uh, sort of the startup culture but turn it for social good. Uh, so a social and Social entrepreneurship, social innovation is where you do you would do a startup, but for a social good, rather than just to make money. Okay, so I'm thinking of uh, there are two gentlemen in Brisbane who have started a program where they have a van that they've converted, that in the rear of the van has a washer and a dryer, 
and the main body of the van they've converted to be a shower and they go around and make that available to homeless people, that kind of thing? Yep, that kind of thing. And uh, so that would be typically something that they need um, financial support to help run. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing might be uh, a social innovation where, uh, whereby a charity um, takes donations of rags and turns them into cleaning cloths, for instance. So okay, great, it makes yeah. money doing that sort of thing. So it can, be, it can be either of those things, but it's sort of a step on from the notion of charity, you know, with the begging bowl out to mm. one where you create organisations which can sustain themselves holistically. Yes. Is this, uh, are you interested in, in this social innovation stuff because it is uh, intrinsic to your makeup or is it something that you tripped over and went, hey, this is actually a really cool thing? Uh, it was the sort of the confluence of, of both things. One, I um, was interested in it. And uh, secondly, there seemed to be a, a gap in the market in, in Sydney with... Um, people at very early stages of social innovation not having much of an idea of how they could turn it into a real business or even work out whether or not it was a viable business. And uh, mm. I had a lot of experience in business, so I started um, working with my colleague Selena Griffith and uh, we, we started um, hosting events and things to help people sort of, sort of jump that gap between wanting to do a social innovation to actually doing one. Nice. Uh, is, is there a specific project that you're working with or, or that you're seeing coming up at the moment that is uh, notable? Um, I'm not really that close to it anymore because I've um, got a quite a big job these days, so I am not that close to it anymore. But we still run Social Innovation Sydney and uh, mm. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of activity in the space. Can I ask what your big job is? I'm Chief Data Officer for the University of New South Wales. So just a little thing, just something on the side? Yeah, and I'm also an adjunct senior lecturer in computer science and engineering. Look, when you've got a spare minute, Kate, you know, maybe we could uh, do something difficult, huh? That sounds very full on, all of those things. Yeah, so it's pretty busy um, looking at uh, data governance and uh, information management and how we value information as an asset across the research, learning and teaching and administration of the university. Extending the role that you hold in that scenario, Mm -hmm. um, we've had a bit of an interesting situation nationally with this census thing. what could the ABS have done better? I think everybody acknowledges that the ABS could have done better. Um, it, it was a pretty sad effort on, on a number of fronts. Uh, just the pure hubris of saying <laughs> you can't hack us was very <laughs> funny. Yes. It was pretty crazy. What are, the, what are some of the things that they could have done better, given that we now are aware of some of the wash-up and what actually seemed to have gone wrong? Oh, look, they could have implemented upstream um, protection. You know, there's, there's tools that let you protect from uh, denial of service attacks and things. Um, they could have put it in the cloud. They could have auto-load balanced across 
more devices. You know, there were many, many fine things, and many people that know a lot more than I have have written about it. Mm. How this is the thing that puzzles me, and my background is is technology, uh, particularly infrastructure. So helping make the kinds of things happen that they didn't do very well. Um, how, how how can we be in a position where a government organisation spend a lot of money on various companies, including probably what used to be the biggest technology company aside or beside Microsoft in IBM, to get that this then falls apart around their ears? Look, I think, I think it's really difficult. Uh, I think we're at a transition stage now between the old saying of, you know, you won't get fired for buying IBM and buying IBM or Oracle or any of the big brands and putting servers in your data centre or servers in their data centre that are dedicated to what you do. That's the old world. And the new world is putting it in high availability zones in the cloud, uh, say Amazon or Azure or something. And they're two different, two completely different mindsets. And I think, I suspect that the ABS is trapped between the two. So it, it hasn't quite migrated to new school thinking and was stuck a little bit in old, but had visions of it being ready for that. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the, the configuration that they apparently did was, was something that we would have done in the past, but I, I definitely wouldn't be doing it for a high availability website now. Yes, very true. Unless you had a lot more money seemingly to burn as somehow the ABS seemed to do. <laughs> it's crazy. Kate, are you doing what uh, Kate of Year 11 thought she would be doing? Uh, no. Um, what I do now didn't exist when I left school. Mm. So I thought I would, yeah, well, I thought I would be a historian. Yeah? So I went and did history and anthropology and philosophy. Wow. So I don't know how this happened. Well, some might argue that that's more connected than, than it might suggest, but they, that does seem to be markedly different to being the chief data officer of a university. Yes. Yes, it is quite different. But, you know, the, the anthropology comes in very handy. Oh, I can imagine. Gosh, it, it's something between that and sociology, uh, things that have always interested me about how humans are and what they who and how and those sorts of things. Um, yeah. I'm in awe of people who invest themselves in our history because I was never a great history student, Kate. I'll make dates up if I think that that's about when it happened. Well, the thing with history, it's not about the dates. And the thing that always fascinated me was how did that happen? Mm. How did these things happen? How did they come to pass? And uh, that's what always drew me in. I guess that's why I was never a good history student because I just worried about the dates and not the how. Mm. Is there a, a specific period or part of history that fascinates you the most? Um, they keep changing, so I, I get <laughs> interested in area. So I did um, medieval history, and um, I also specialised in the in. Uh, I studied anti-Semitism in Germany from 1871 to 1945 at uni, but that was pretty specific. But um, in recent times, I've been quite fascinated by um, the First World War. Yes. 
uh, travelled to a lot of the sites and looked at the landscapes and looked at a lot of the history there. Does, do you find that travelling to the locations where it happened, um, and in some cases they've changed dramatically from, from what they were at the time, that that really helps you form a better understanding of the how? Yeah, when you, when you see the landscapes, it's quite amazing. Um, for instance, in, in Belgium, you know, when you understand that some of the land that they were fighting over, that, that they fought for months and months and months back and forth across it and gained precisely two metres. Wow. And, and that if you go there at the right time of year, that the, the mud in Flanders is so thick that you, you, you build up huge wads of mud on your feet and stuff. So it, it really gives you a feel for it. I mean, we've had, um, with the, the 100th um, anniversary of the, the landing at Gallipoli, uh, a swathe of drama thrust at us in the last 18 months um, around, you know, here's the thing and there's something and check out our big movie and those sorts of things. Did, did you see any of those big TV dramas around um, Gallipoli and, and, and those sorts of things? Were they close to accurate or mostly? Oh, I typically don't like to see the dramatisations of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I prefer... The, the historical or, or the documentaries <laughs> sure. uh, for those periods. So, yeah, I, I haven't watched any of those. I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're lovely. <laughs> Look, I can tell you that some of them were and some of them were very not. <laughs> uh, so, so that's okay. What for you is a source of strength, Kate? Um, that's an interesting question. I, th- I think that there are people who um, have are, are inner directed and people who take their strength from things external to them. Mm-hmm. And, and pretty much, I think I'm I'm fairly inner directed, or you know, have a strong internal locus of control, as we say in management speak. Yes. Um, so, so I tend to let my mind control things rather than my emotions. Do you find that that can make um, situations more difficult for you at times? Oh, not for me. For other people, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh, Kate, because I have dealt with people who are, as you talk about yourself, and yes, it's never usually difficult for you. <laughs> So, you know, you can you can be in a meeting and you'll be talking about, you know, this is like years and years ago I was in banking and finance and, you know, we'd be going to restructure a division and you'd be sitting yes. there and you'd be just sort of going, so, yeah, we'll just take out these people and we'll put, you know, move these ones over here. And there are other people in the room going, but what about their people? They've got lives. And I'm like, yeah, but they're surplus. We're going now. <laughs> we don't have money for them. They have to go now. Look, sometimes those tough decisions have to be made, don't they? It is. And many years ago, when I first started working, I the company I was working for went into liquidation and got taken over by Deutsche Bank. And mm. one of my formative experiences in the workplace was working for the guy that made all the decisions like that. Yeah. And so I decided that there was two sides to play in this. There was the 
getting rid of people, the restructuring side of things and the being restructured side of things. Yes. So, and, and that, that's just a fact of modern capitalism. <sighs> yes, it is. So I, I spent the last 20 years um, optimising processes and streamlining things in, in my work. Yes. And sometimes to the benefit and sometimes to the detriment of people and their employment. Yeah, and sometimes, well, and, but always to the benefit of shareholders. Let me, let me assure you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I can understand that. You're right, that, that is the, the capitalistic world we live in. It is about uh, make benefit glorious shareholders. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the fact of modern enterprise, that that's what we do. And it, if you don't like it, then go, go, go do something else. Yeah. There are plenty of government jobs I hear going. <laughs> it's just catching up with the government that they, they can run leaner and tighter ships. Mm. Um, I used to work for the government and, you know, some days I used to think that you could put about 50% of the people up against the wall and shoot them and not notice any drop in productivity. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it's always the way you hear, particularly in government organisations, government jobs, you know, people think they've... And, and well, rightly or wrongly, feel they've got a job for life. Uh, and while that may have been the case 20-something years ago, it doesn't make it right or wrong. Uh, these days, there's just no room or opportunity for that, is there? There isn't. And I, I think, I mean, I think some political parties have an ideological position on outsourcing. Um, but But the fact is, there's no good reason why you need a government agency to collect money. So, for instance, you don't need a tax office. You just need a compliance division. Yes. Yeah, a yeah. bank can collect your money. Yeah, well, that's right. The rules are this. Here's the money. Pay the money. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, they're going to reshape... They're going to rethink government because, uh, like everybody, everybody is facing this dilemma of we're going to automate, we are going to... Mm have straight through processing, we are going to not le need less people. We're essentially facing a jobs-free future. That's scary. And, you know, the, thing, the things that we are doing now around AI, robotics, machine learning are all driving that. So that's, that's really interesting. And I talk at my old school and tell the girls, you know, get a job that can't be automated. And last year, one of the parents asked me, what kind of job is that? And I said, well, um, not lawyers. And all the lawyers in the room went white because <laughs> even we're, we're even automating lawyers. So, you know, so we initially we start out automating the clerical low-level jobs. We move yeah. up the food chain. We're now at the point where we, we are outsourcing lawyers to lower-cost jurisdictions, and that is just a precursor to automating them completely. What, what, what does an automated legal system look like then? If such and such is uh, you know, having to, to you know, being charged with uh, a crime, how does that then play out? Well, conceivably, you, you, you don't even... You, you, just, you need fewer judges even so that you could have... Um, feed all the evidence in, run it through the rules engine, run it through the case base and pop out a provisional ruling. 
that's you know conceivable a conceivable future. Um, so there, there's it's really interesting, and you know the um, the choices now. You know we're we're already seeing um, robotized medicine, so robots doing surgery mm, at a higher yes. quality than than many doctors do. We're seeing um, robot nurses. So all those jobs that we think of as, as not needing, not, not able to be automated are actually um, so somewhat at risk. Of course, they'll come for the truck drivers first. Yeah, yes. Or, uh, yeah. I, I guess it does leave me wondering, are, are the jobs that are left in an automated world the people that talk about this is how we automate it? Well, that's kind of why I ended up in um, in the university and in engineering, um, because because the the pressures on us to automate things are very high, um, and and the moral security and privacy implications of the Internet of Things are really really important. So that that's what I research that, that area. It's really fascinating, though I do take umbrage at the phrase the Internet of Things. That strikes me as the stupidest marketing doublespeak ever. Am I misunderstanding it? No, no, but there, there, was, there was a number of versions of it that came out at roughly the same time. So there was Internet of Things, Internet of Everything, I forget the other one. And there was, there was a bunch of them competing and Internet of yes. Things won. So mm-hmm. we're kind of stuck with it. It's like Web 2.0. It was kind of a stupid thing to, to say to and it won. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, Internet of Things. Kate, what's your favourite um, takeaway food choice? Oh, I, I, like, I like Chinese or pizza. Oh, I can't decide. Yes. You're making me choose one. Well, you don't have to choose. Both of those are totally valid choices and can exist yeah, so, simultaneously. No, I can't, I can't choose because I like them all. Now, this is the important question. There's two, one, one regarding Chinese and one regarding um, uh, pizza. The Chinese question, is Australian Chinese reasonable or have we prostituted it too much from what it actually could be tasting like? It depends where you, where you get it. Mm-hmm. There's some really good places that, you know, have regional cuisine. There's one here near the uni that does... Um, does Sichuan feeling that's really nice, um, and then there's your local suburban Chinese that's you know got its formula. Yep, here's the lemon chicken. Mm. Special fried rice, knock yourself out. Yeah. Pizza, and this is critical, Kate. Mm. Pineapple on a pizza. It's is it sacrilegious or is it a gift? No, no, it's. It's entirely allowable on an, on some pizzas. Some pizzas, but not all. Mm. Which is it allowed on? Well, Hawaiian, obviously. Naturally, yes. Goes without saying, and supreme. But we can't go beyond that. There's a pineapple. There, there's a discrete. The Venn diagram of pizza and pineapple is not very big. Look, I, I'm I'm not willing to say other people should shouldn't have pineapple on whatever they want. But they're my, that's my boundaries. 
I'm all, I always struggle with people that think that anchovies on a pizza is a good thing. I love anchovies. I think they have their place. They're great in a, in a good um, Caesar salad. But oh, on a pizza, I just go, no, there's no, oh, no. No, that's like a bad surprise. Oh, no, no. To me, that's yeah, anchovies with a nice pepperoni and some olives. Yeah. I think if you can get a good pepperoni, you're winning, no matter which way you go. Not your st- standard stuff. You've got to go to like a, um, a Mario's or a, like a, a non-generic. Non-Anglo. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there's some, and I know there's some great ones in Sydney. Wow. Now I want pizza, Kate. This is horrible. Yeah, pizza, pizza could be good. Um, but, but the whole thing with, with pizza is, you know, the real question is thick crust or thin crust. Oh, look, I'm a student of all crusts. <laughs> I'm a body made by pizza crusts. And I was very lucky in a recent trip to the US uh, in, of all places, Los Angeles, to find a restaurant that a friend of mine said is, gives us authentic Chicago deep dish pizza, and it was incredible. I've never tried the deep dish, the really, really crazy American deep dish. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's not the thick crust stuff that we get. Which is your crust preference? Oh, I'm a thin crust person. Yeah, I look, at, and that allows the flavours to shine, doesn't it? It doesn't get in the way. Yeah, and it's sort of, it's more traditional. Mm. Oh, it's, yeah, you would fire those kinds of things, right? Mm. What's your thoughts on stuffed crust, particularly things when they put, like, uh, meat pies or little frankfurts in the crust? They're not my cup of tea. I'm not sure they're anyone's cup of tea, are they? I don't know. It's, it's, it's those commercial brands that, that do those things and they're always looking for a gimmick. You know, as a marketer, I, I understand you're looking for a gimmick mm. and there's a certain class of people who will go for your gimmick. But I, I like, you know, a, a nice wood-fired thin crust pizza. Now you're talking. Mm. With some good, like some good ingredients across it. Mm. Throw in... Some pine nuts, some chicken, some bacon, some cashews, some red onion. Oh, we cook it with gas. Yeah, yeah. Pizza for dinner, people. <laughs> what happens when we die, Kate? I don't know. Nothing really goes away. Mm-hmm. So we change. I'm just not sure what we change into. So the, there's a state change in that context. Mm. Do you... Do you ponder the afterlife much? Not really. I was brought up. I was brought up Catholic, so mm. so you know we 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 were taught the you know that heaven and hell existed and things. Mm-hmm. But I'm not so sure now. You're too busy to ponder the afterlife, Kate. Quite <laughs> honestly, all the things that you've got going on—it's crazy. Well, I've got, I've also got a start up, but that's just on the side. <laughs> Just on the side, please. You didn't have hours to spare to start with. What are you starting up? Um, I'm doing a startup that's going to um, that's an Internet of Things startup that's going mm-hmm. to connect makers with factories. So. Okay, like the people that I have an idea and I've made a prototype. Or you now want to make, make a prototype. Now. Right. Yeah, so there's lots of people who are doing hardware startups and are having trouble connecting with the right factories, so I'm going to connect them up with the right factories. Wow. 
That can't be automated, Kate. That's good. Yes. <laughs> Very good. It ticks all the boxes. <laughs> so you're one of the people that's doing people out of jobs because you're automating things and then making a job that can't be automated. Yes. I think you've got this all sewn up, Kate Carruthers. <laughs> it seems like a prudent approach, don't you think? No, the, the, but the, um, what's happening now with the young people, when, you, when you're talking to the young students here and stuff, they're going... They're saying, like, I know there's no job waiting for me at the end of the line here. I'm going to have to make my own. So they're very entrepreneurial. Um, they're doing their own startups. And one of the big challenges of when you're doing an Internet of Things startup, a hardware one especially, is you don't know who to pr- approach to make your prototype. You don't know who to approach to do your short runs. You don't know who to, to approach to scale up your runs. So really, that, that's a gap in the market. It's, it's honestly really smart because I have a, a friend who had an idea and went through exactly those questions. He spent many, many hours of sweat, blood, sweat and tears trying to do it in a way that was cost effective. Mm. Um, and at one point, the process nearly bankrupted. It was incredible to watch and a great outcome for him after we got through that hump. But wow, it was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, our, our goal is to streamline that process so that you can you can have a suite of here's some places you can go to get your prototype made here's some places you can go if you need a hand line to manufacture you know here's how you scale up Kate with all this going on what are you going to achieve in the next 12 months I don't know I just feel like I'm not doing much (laughs) gosh oh I feel like an underachiever just talking with you (laughs) There'll be some things in your diary, some plans that you've got written somewhere uh, on your vision board. No, so I, I have some travel, some plans to visit places. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got a couple of trips to New Zealand planned. Um, and next year, uh, next year, sort of, I'm hoping to spend like five weeks in Scandinavia. Great. Just because, or you have things there you need to be doing? Um, combination. So I have a project where I'm visiting all my ancestral homelands. Nice. So I want to go back to Scandinavia. Um, so we have some Norwegian ancestry. And um, I went to Greece earlier in the year. So I have mm-hmm. some Greek ancestry. This is your very own Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Hydra and yes. um, discovered that my, my ancestor from Hydra was um, a pirate. Uh, a sea, he was a sea captain, a pirate, and a convict. Great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a heck of a mix. Have, have there been many of those kinds of surprises? Um, no, that was the best one. That was the that was sort of the most exciting one. But the rest of um, so the Norwegian connection is just sailors, a whole lot of merchant marine, uh, and yeah. So and the and then um, Scotland has has a bunch of crofters. So yeah, nothing nothing spectacular. But the pirate was the pirate convict was probably my best find. Did he meet a grisly end? No, he was pardoned by the king in 1837 and went back to Greece, to his island, and uh, two of his sons came back here. 
so he came to a good end. And the claim continued? Yeah, yeah. So we're quite, quite numerous here now. Hey, Kate. Yeah? Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know the things that you've said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very clearly you're a person that has a propensity to tweet uh, on the time. Mm-hmm. Are there other social accounts you would want people to know about? Oh, no. People will find them if, they, if they're out there. <laughs> people will just track you down. I'm one of the most findable people in the world. <laughs> it's all that internet of things. <laughs> it's the internet of Kate. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at K Carruthers is indeed human.